Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters with Scott and Paul. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you up close and personal with some of the most accomplished and influential songwriters out there, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the writing process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind their songs. We dig into some of the hits and the lesser-known tunes and hopefully have some fun along the way. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think of the show by sharing your thoughts with us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Amazing Game by Mindy Bear and featuring Trombone Shorty as heard on her 2014 album Wild Heart. That song is one of many co-written by today's guest, Jim Peterick. Singer, songwriter, guitarist, and keyboardist Jim Peterick is best known as a founding member of the band Survivor and the co-writer of their Grammy-winning double platinum number one hit single, Eye of the Tiger. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. 35 of Jim's songs have appeared on the Billboard pop chart, including seven top ten singles. His first major success came when his original band, Ides of March, took the Peterick-penned vehicle to the number two position on the pop chart in 1970, spawning cover versions by Chet Baker and Shirley Bassey. After a stint as a solo artist with Epic Records, Jim formed Survivor in 1979, pinning a string of hits for the band including I Can't Hold Back, High on You, The Search Is Over, Burning Heart, and Is This Love. While still writing hits for his own group, Jim forged a successful partnership with the members of 38 Special, co-writing classic songs including Hold On Loosely and Caught Up In You. Widely respected as a top-notch collaborator, Jim has co-written songs with a number of artists, including the Beach Boys, Leonard Skinner, Sammy Hagar, Cheap Trick, the Doobie Brothers, and Ario Speedwagon. The long list of those who've covered his compositions includes Paul Anka, Gloria Gaynor, Tony Orlando, Reba McIntyre, Larry Gatlin, Blackhawk, and The Outlaws. He is the co-author with Dave Austin of Songwriting for Dummies, and he recently released a fantastic autobiography called Through the Eye of the Tiger, The Rock and Roll Life of Survivor's Founding Member. We're giving away a copy of the book this month, so go to our website at songcraftshow.com, send us a message with the phrase Eye of the Tiger, and you'll be entered to win. Watch the news section of our site to see who the lucky winner will be. But right now, we are the lucky ones because we get to chat with Jim Peterick. Jim, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, you know, this is my passion. Uh, off off the air, you said, you know, you probably told these stories a million times. I said, you know, maybe, maybe not, but the bottom line is I could tell these stories forever because songwriting, it sounds very pompous, but songwriting is my life. Mm. That is what it is. I mean, I love the performing end of it, but... You know, that's mainly to inform the other side of it, which is songwriting. Well, it's our passion, too, and it's, uh, it's a real honor to have you here. When, when Scott was reading that intro, I just thought, oh, I know that song, and I know that song, and, uh, <laughs> so I, I can't wait to get in and hear about them. Um, and so to go all the way back to the beginning, you're a Chicago kid, right? I am. Um, all the Ides of March, uh, which I know we'll talk about later, are from one town called Berwyn, Illinois. Okay. And and growing up in that area, what were some of the first things that you listened to, your first musical influences that really kind of oh, piqued your interest? Well, um, you know, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash. I had uh, sisters that were older than me, and thank God for them. They would bring home these little records with a big hole in them called <laughs> 45s. And we had an RCA Victor, uh, you know, multiplay. Uh, and I was just fascinated. I was four years old. <laughs> I was so excited when I heard... Uh, Heartbreak Hotel for the first time. Mm. Didn't know what I was feeling, just uh, it sent electricity through my body. Wow. And it just, I never looked back. Well, I know that as you, you got a little older, of course, you began putting together your, your own bands, which uh, 
I believe the Shondells uh, was was the name of one of your groups, and it all sort of ultimately led to um, the Ides of March, which is where you found your first uh, real success. And and with that group, you uh, wrote more than a half dozen charting singles from the mid '60s through the early '70s, including "You Wouldn't Listen," "Superman," and "L.A. Goodbye." Um, but your best known song from that era is, of course, "Vehicle." Tell us about riding vehicle. I was dating a girl. You know, I was 17. She was 15. And one day she decided she didn't want to date me no more. <laughs> and I was dejected and, you know, depressed. But suddenly this girl started calling me again. Uh, and uh, she knew I had a, a car. You know, just having a car was a big deal. I had a 64 white Plymouth Valiant. Right. And uh, she started calling me for rides to different places. And even though we weren't dating, I'm going, well, you know what? I'll give her a ride, you know, maybe maybe we could rekindle something, you know. Yeah. Well, that that didn't happen. I was just taking her all these places, and suddenly I started feeling resentful. And I'm going, you know, all I am is your vehicle, baby, you know? <laughs> yeah. I had this horn riff in my head forever. You know, I just mm. there's something about that lick, and I plugged it into this whole idea. Taught the song to the band. Um, our managers took us down to CBS Studios in Chicago. We kind of knew it was magic, and when that song hit the radio in uh, in Chicago, it hit number one. I started getting calls again from that same girl. Okay, <laughs> and uh, and forty two years later, that girl is still my wife. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. In those early days, who were some of the bands that you guys were able to tour with? The real touring really started after Vehicle hit, and and that was the summer of nineteen seventy. It was a great year. I always say this to have a number one record because there was so much music in the air. Sure. Uh, we we toured with uh, Janis Joplin and, and her fantastic band, uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience, uh, uh, let's see, Led Zeppelin, wow. uh, the Grateful Dead, uh, Almond Brothers, uh, and uh, one show with the Almonds. We opened up for them at a college down in, in Georgia back in 70. In and uh, we were doing our show, you know, it was a show. Right. And the almonds get on, and they're amazing. But the audience was starting to yawn. They weren't really, <laughs> the Ides of March did our, you know, we did our dance steps and, you know, the whole thing. Right. And it, and it it made Greg Allman go to the mic after one of the songs and said, well, you know, uh, we ain't no show band, but, you know, we're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys had a, a you know, a, a good run um, with the Ides of March together for, for several years before breaking up uh, in 1973. So so what happened that sort of led to the end of that era? Well, I, I guess I'm afraid that uh, I was the main reason, uh, you know, and I was kind of looking at the, like the syndrome of the grass is always greener, Uh you know, I was looking at the group Chase, which um, was managed by the same management as we were, 
and the amazing caliber of musicians in that band. And I'm going, boy, I'd like to, you know, play with those kind of cats, you right. know. Uh, that was more kind of a, a jazz rock fusion kind of thing. It, it was. And yeah. The chops were incredible. And I, I don't think I truly appreciated what the Ides had and what we were. We were a family. Uh, we weren't chosen. We didn't choose each other because of our amazing chops or musicianship. We were all good players, but we, we were friends before we were even a band. Right. And that, that came across every time we played. But I was a little bit like, you know, well, I did that. Let's let's see what other, you know, greener pastures I can find. Yeah. So I I was also very influenced by the singer-songwriters of the day. I was a huge, huge Cat Stevens fan. Sure. Paul Simon. Uh, those two were, uh, in particular were, were my heroes. And I wanted a little more of a personal expression kind of a thing that it right. didn't seem I could do in, in the group context. And uh, I finally said, guys, you know, I think it's time for me to segue out. And that led me on a journey to uh, what became my first and only solo album. At least, well, I did one recently, but for that era, Don't yeah. Fight the Feeling on Epic Records in, in 1976. Yeah, speaking of which, I want to go deep cut here. I, I want to hear a, a bit of a song, Naugahyde Heart, which was on that <laughs> album. So oh my God, yeah. how, how would you how would you describe the music that you were writing and, and performing in that period as reflected on your Don't Fight the Feeling album? It's hard to describe, okay? I think that's part of the reason it didn't really, you know, hit a chord with the, with the public. No, I had heard, how do you classify that? It's a little bit of Steely Dan, it's a little bit of, you know, blues rock. I don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, the rest of the music, I mean, like, don't Fight the Feeling, which I think is, you know, my favorite song on the record and, and pedal cut. If anything, it was like channeling the Beach Boys in, in a certain sense. Sure. Uh, Let There Be Song was really the prototype for all the power ballads that I wrote since then. Like, um, you know, The Search is Over. It really had its, its seeds in, in that song. Which right. Was I first attempt at the power ballad. Right. Well, I think it's really fascinating uh, that about the same time, that you were playing this sort of progressive rock jazz fusion, bringing in all these different elements that had influenced you uh, in, into your solo album. You were also writing for other artists, including your label mates uh, at Epic Records, uh, the group Essence, who hit the R&B charts with your song Sweet Fools in the mid-1970s. Um, and it, it, it's wild for me to imagine that the same guy wrote Naugahyde Heart and Sweet Fools, and, and both of which you wrote by yourself without co-writers. Um, and so I, I'm curious, from a process point of view, how do you go about getting in a different headspace depending on the project at hand? Uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm a fan of music. You know, I'm not just like one kind of a genre. I'm a fan of great music. I'm, I'm a fan of hit records, you yeah. know. 
I was truly in, inspired by that whole doo-wop kind of influence. And by the way, Sweet Fools is one of my all-time favorite, not only songs, but production. It's, yeah, it's a great you record. Know, it's, it, thanks. It, it's huge. I mean, I can only take partial credit in the production of that. I would say it was such a combination of things. First of all, it was engineered by the great Barry Moraz. Barry was one of the pioneers of the drum booth. And you, you hear that on, on the stuff he did with me. And uh, Sweet Fools, the snare drum is about as big as, you know, my daddy's <laughs> shoes. You know, right, right. En en enormous. Yeah. Uh, and I, I miss Barry. He was just a mm. terrific engineer. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you mentioned talking about your solo album, how you said it didn't quite uh, resonate with the public like you might have hoped. Um, but you didn't have that problem with the band that you formed in the late 1970s, uh, a little band called Survivor. So how did that come together? Well, uh, you know, I was touring behind Don't Fight the Feeling. I was had shows with Hart and Boston. I was uh, I opened for Boston at the Uptown Theater in Chicago on their very uh, their second show of all time. Wow! And um, I tell the story in the book of a, a very very scared Brad Delp waiting standing in the wings. I had met him before the show. He's standing in the wings, and I'm standing next to him. He goes, Jim, I can't go on. I'm shaking like a leaf. I can't go on. What? How do you? you know, how do you uh, combat stage fright? And pretty much right then they announced Boston, and I, I remember shoving him on stage. I said, "Just go on and do it." <laughs> and and I I shoved Brad Delp to the microphone. <laughs> the next show I did with him in another city, I believe it was Milwaukee. He was like Sammy Davis Jr. He, all the stage fright was gone, wow. you know. But I, I was there at the beginning. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I was touring so incessantly, trying to make this album a hit, that I developed a cold, which developed into pneumonia, which landed me in the hospital for quite a serious bout of, of pneumonia. Hmm. And while I was there, and the pretty nurses were beating on my chest, and I was on a codeine drip, <laughs> I was, I was hallucinating. And I was hallucinating this great band that would be the ultimate rock band. I didn't have the name Survivor yet, although that was on my list of, of possible names. Yeah. But I was thinking Frankie Sullivan. Okay, I just saw him with Mariah, you know, before I got sick. And I see this blonde kid all over the stage just ripping it up. So yeah. He was one of the first names that I wrote down. I wrote down Gary Smith and Dennis Johnson, the unbelievable rhythm section of Chase. Had those guys been playing with you uh before this point or yeah, that yeah they were they were playing with the jim peterick band right, right which yeah. I, uh and, and but i said i've got to have these guys yeah. you know in any any band that I, I have and then i had written down dave bickler who you know i was making ends meet by singing saying jingles you know right look look out for the ball look out for the schlitz malt liquor bowl <laughs> you know <laughs> And make it a good living going to the mailbox and getting blue checks, you know, right. every other week. That wasn't a bad way to finance my demos. Uh, and there's this incredible singer who actually, for the first time I used him, if you hear the very end of the fate of Let There Be Song, you hear Dave Bickler for the very first time. Hmm. Uh, but he was another guy that I put in my wish list. And uh, when I got well enough, I started calling, calling the troops. Yeah. And, um I remember Frankie coming over to the house, and um, he brought his Les Paul and plugged it in, and he started playing Somewhere in America, which impressed me no end, because that was a Jim Peterick band staple at the time and at the clubs, so yeah. he became the, the first you know member of Survivor. Right, right. Uh, you know, it, it interests me, speaking of Dave Bickler, that um, you handled lead vocal duties in, in the Ides of March, and on some of the 
first Survivor album even, but you know, ultimately you chose not to function as the lead vocalist in the band. And I'm wondering how you came to that decision. Well, that's you know a major thread uh, that runs throughout the book, and, and it's it's my inability to really confront uh, opposition. Uh, Frankie had different uh, different ideas, you right. know, for a band, and you know, uh, it, it's sometimes you know it's not. Uh, sometimes you're influenced by people, you know, and I was I was kind of a peacemaker, and I didn't want to cause waves, and where maybe I should have. It just wasn't to be. Right. And, uh, and I do a couple of co-lead vocals and, on the first record, rock, uh, not Rock Into the Night, that's another story. <laughs> but uh, Love Has Got Me and Whatever It Takes, there's some definite vocal cameos there. Right. By the second album, though, you know, it was all, all Dave. And, sure. of course, I don't begrudge Dave because he, he's an amazing vocalist. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I have no problem with, with Dave Bickler. Or of course Jimmy Jameson, but by that time the brand was made, and suddenly the guy that was singing, leading with the Ides of March and lead guitar, was playing keyboards and not singing. So right. it, was, it was a little hard to take. Well, uh, you know, and after that, you know, the first album didn't necessarily have any any big hits. There, there wasn't that sort of the the big moment after the first record came out. But then the the single Poor Man's Son from Survivor's second album, Premonition, did become a top 40 single in 1981. Um, but obviously your huge breakthrough as a band came with uh, Eye of the Tiger in in my generation uh, my pulse still races when i hear the opening bars of that song and it makes me imagine that i'm going to start you know working out and and uh, become become rocky balboa you know um but yeah. tell us how you wrote that song and how it wound up being such an integral part of the rocky three film well you know and, and this is the story that that i i do tell so much but so i'm going to not do the dialect because i do a very bad stallone just, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll use our imaginations <laughs> I got home and I had an answering machine message from Sylvester Stallone, and he basically said, I got your number from Tony Scotty, and I uh, got this new movie called Rocky Three. I love your guys' sounds, you know, uh, and I'm going, yeah, right. This right. is not Stallone on my <laughs> answering machine, right. Uh, and, uh, and yet, I called him back, and he answered, and basically said, yeah, I, I love, I heard Poor Man's Son. That was the one that, that hooked him. It's funny you should mention that. That was the sound he was looking for. He called it street. Huh. He really liked the rawness of that sound. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, Frankie and I really going for that sound in Premonition. And one of the things that that caused that wonderful rawness was the fact that we couldn't find a good room to record in in <laughs> in uh, at Rumble Studios, and yeah. we ended up recording the drums in the kitchen, <laughs> wow. uh, much to the chagrin of the captain and Neil who owned the studio. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they, you know they wanted our business, so they had to work around it. Right. But, 
that was part of that rawness that Stallone heard was the Dave Bickler's urgent vocal and that drum sound. Yeah. Uh, and he says, uh, Stallone goes, well, look, man, you know, uh, I'm going to send you guys the first couple minutes of this movie, and I want you to write a song to this montage, you know, that has Mr. T in it and, uh, and Rocky, and, and you'll, you'll get the vibe. Right. You've got to rent a Betamax Pro, and, you know, FedEx will deliver this, this reel tomorrow. So, you know, I found a Betamax Pro, set it up on the kitchen counter, and we just really got the energy out of it, you know, and I, I had my, you know, white less pull around my neck, and I just started kind of, you know, instinctually going, dig a 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 dig you know. And and I'm watching the punches being thrown, and I'm going, every drummer in the world hates me because there's that one off beat, you know. And they go, why did you do that? I said, I was trying to coordinate it to the punch. Uh, <laughs> it does. It feels like punches when I think about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got you can't. All punches aren't equal, so you got to <laughs> wait a couple beats. You know? Yeah. But I, I always can tell the good drummers from the not so good drummers when they can't get that off time. You know. <laughs> but uh, but I, I had to call Stallone back. And I said, look, that's a great montage, but I don't know what the story's about. You got to send us the whole movie. And he goes, well, can't do that. The movie company won't let me do it. And I said, well, basically, we got to. We got to see this, you know, we got to see the whole movie. So, okay, you know. So the next morning, FedEx comes with the whole movie, and, you know, Frankie came back. And that's when the whole movie started, and the whole song started taking shape, because we saw what this was about. This is about the underdog rising up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and we heard that phrase that was already in the, in the movie, is a rough cut and Burgess Meredith's character saying, Rock, you're losing the eye of the tiger. Yeah. You know, you got to keep the eye. Of the... And of course, you know, I know, I know a hook when I hear one. <laughs> right. And, uh, that, that became the, the focal point uh, of the song. And, um, you know, I, I remember the next day, Frank and I got together again, tried to write some lyrics and I, I didn't know exactly where to go. And I have to say, Frankie started the chain of of uh, creativity he says how about how about this he goes back on the street doing time taking chances i really love that street feel of that and i said how about this rising up back on the street did my time took my chances yeah and, and i put it in that perspective and told the story of this guy that was losing his passion you know yeah and how he had to get it back how he had to get it back the eye of the tiger yeah and um from then on for the next three days i was I was, well, I'm, I, I was a runner. I still run, but I was running a lot back then. And as I was running, I had the, the tape recorder with me, and I was, you know, singing lyrics into the tape recorder. <laughs> and um, uh, it's some really embarrassing stuff on the way to what became a, a classic uh, lyric. Right. But one of them was, uh, uh, rising up, ready to spring. <laughs> and when I look at that now, I said, "What was I thinking? Ready to spring? Yeah. That sounds so bad, you know." But uh, you only know that in retrospect. Thinking about that process of writing it and all the kind of, um, you know, maybe the false starts and the different ideas you had, when you finally got done with it, um, you, I mean, you've written dozens, maybe hundreds of songs up to that point. Did you know that you had written a giant at that point? <laughs> well, not really. I mean, I don't know. I'm only speaking for myself. I don't know what Frankie was feeling. Uh, I know the band was really nonplussed, especially Stephanie. He was grumbling about going to the studio to record what he called, oh, that movie music. Yeah. 
want to get out of bed to do that, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for my own sake, I knew we had something pretty cool. And I knew it was probably going to be a, a, a top ten record because it had a $50 million video to go with it called yeah, Rocky Street. Yeah. You know, but, you know, really what astounds me is the staying power, you know. Yeah. In the year 2014, it's as relevant now as it ever was. In fact, it seems to build to some extent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's, of course, what you could never foresee. Yeah. Well, and of course, I mean, I the Tiger topped the charts for six weeks. It was at number one. It was certified double platinum. You were nominated for an Academy Award, and uh, the band won the Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or a Group. And when you have a song that successful i can imagine that it can feel like it's difficult to top that um and in fact immediately after that um you know there were not any major hits from the caught in the game lp which followed the eye of the tiger album and so this is 1983 1984 were you concerned at that time that that perhaps the defining success of eye of the tiger would make it difficult to write something else that would capture radio listeners attention in the same way uh, yeah, it's a great question. I never felt like that. I, I just felt that um, we were intimidated by that success, and it affected Caught in the Game. Uh, plus, Dave was having uh, a lot of vocal problems. And right. I, when I, I can barely listen to that record now because I, I can hear the struggle in his voice. Yeah. And, and uh, he was trying so hard, but he was having uh, you know problems with his nodules or pulse sure. or whatever you call it. Yeah. Uh, but I never felt anything but wait till next time. I, I, I was just absolutely, um, you know, sure that the next album would be as big and we would finally separate ourselves from that. Yeah. Not separate, but prove ourselves that we could do more than just be a Rocky band. Right, right, uh, sure. And, and that, of course, you, you know, the history was that Dave had to secede and we had to look for a new singer. Right. So that's when uh, Jimmy Jameson came in and... and um you know, for the Vital Signs album, uh, and you guys did that. Vital Signs album was very successful. You you scored a, a number 13 hit with I Can't Hold Back. I can feel you tremble when we touch And I feel the hand of fate Reaching out to both of us This Did you actually approach the writing process differently when you were writing songs for Dave to sing versus songs for Jimmy to sing? Great question. Very much. Uh, you know, I, I write for voices. I, I really do. I write for the way that person sings and, and his personality as well. Dave, I knew I had to write tough. You know, it had to be street. He had that, that, that gravel in his voice that just to define that. Right. Uh, with Jimmy, he's a pop singer who sings rock. Uh, you know, with, with Cobra and Target, his first band, he was singing rock. But I hear a prettiness in that sound. That you know, And, and as soon as I heard when Jimmy came down, first of all, he, he blew away all the other auditioners. Uh, most of the auditioner, uh, the people that auditioned were not even close. And uh, I, I, I think we were about three-quarters through writing the song Searches Over, which I was just writing as a part of my continuing trying to write the best power ballad I can. Right. And I, sh I showed Jimmy uh, 
the first verse and chorus, and I heard it in my ear, and he, he, he was singing to me without a mic, and I'm just gonna, I'm getting goosebumps, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I knew right then that we had found the voice. Sure. It's, it's hard to change singers in sure, midstream yeah. like that. It very rarely works. Yeah. You have to find someone who's similar enough, but not not trying to be a clone. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and, and Survivor's and, songs are not, they're not easy on singers. I mean, those are rangy <laughs> songs. They're high, you know. I, I know. I mean, good Lord. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I, I could never sing those songs. I can write them, but I can't sing them. Well, and, and you know, the Vital Signs album brought two top ten singles in 1985. Uh, the first, of course, was High on You. <laughs> second big single that year was The Search Is Over. How can I convince you what you see is real Who am I to blame you for doubting what you feel I was always reaching you were just a girl I knew I took for granted The friend I have in you I was living for a dream Loving for a moment Taking on the world That was just my style Now I look into you In the Ides of March days, you primarily wrote songs by yourself, but with Survivor, you co-wrote a lot with, with Frankie Sullivan, who we've talked about. Um, of course, you wrote those two songs I just mentioned with him, as well as Eye of the Tiger, which, which you were telling us about. But talk a little bit about the difference in approaching the writing process by yourself versus uh, collaborating with a co-writer. Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I'm, I'm capable of, of writing alone just fine. But, yeah. you know, it's like beef stew. You know, with one ingredient, it's kind of one-dimensional. And I found that if you find the right co-writer, it can be a very rich broth, you know. And with Frankie, he was not a strong songwriter, but he was a good editor. And, and I knew that if, if, if it didn't pass muster with Frank, it probably wasn't going to be a very commercial idea. He had a good commercial sense. I knew I couldn't get away with much, you know, yeah. uh, outside of the genre that we were targeted to, which is really what a brand and a band is all about right sort of helping keep you in that lane so to speak right and so after eye of the tiger uh, survivor's biggest charting single i believe was burning heart right which was then featured mm -hmm. in rocky four and went to number two on the pop chart was that a song written specifically for that film as well it was uh we were on the road with our real speed wagon uh, it seems like we were on the road with them for most of the 80s <laughs> but i remember we were down in the south again, and uh, I was around the pool, you know, just trying to get some sun, and I got, the, the desk came up to me and said, we got a script, uh, well, we got a package for you, and I opened it up, there's a script from Rocky Four, 
And I said, Frank, look at this. He goes, yeah, I know. I just talked to Stallone. He wants us to do it again. <laughs> and we were, you know, very excited. And I was reading the script, you know, and it was that whole Russian versus American kind of vibe. And I really saw the potential in that. And I, I was jotting down, you know, lyrics. And I'm going, uh, two worlds collide, rival nations, it's a primitive clash, renting years of frustration. I had that, and um, I had the roadies bring down a world sir electric piano to one of our rooms, and we, me and Frankie just banged it out right in uh, in the hotel room. Cool. And uh, we were thinking, is this too much like Tiger? And, well, you know, slower, and it's this and that, but this is really what Stallone was looking for. So we went to see Stallone, and, and he approved Well, and Survivor's last top ten single was another one that showed the versatility of the band and, and of you as a writer, another ballad. Uh, is this love in 1986. What do you remember about writing that song? I remember being at the piano. This, uh, I have an Ebach piano. It's spelled I-B-A-C-H. Hmm. And it's written, you know, Eye of the Tiger, the search is over. Uh, most of the hits were written on that piano. And I was kind of taken off from a Cindy Lauper track, and I don't remember which one. Probably and, a Time After Time, maybe, it was Cindy Lauper. Yeah, it might have been Time yeah. After Time, yeah. And, uh, I, yeah, exactly. So that was my uh, my start point. And, uh, man, when I hit that chorus, I, I turned on the tape recorder real quick. <laughs> uh, actually, the original melody was even more melodic than that, and I, I vetoed myself. Now, there's an example of, I knew that if I sang this to Frankie, he would have vetoed it, so I vetoed myself. Wow. Uh, originally, went, is this love that I'm feeling? Is this love that's been keeping me up all night? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a higher jump. <laughs> up all night. Yeah, you know, yeah. too much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 here's a great, there's a great story that only a, a songwriter uh, geek would really care about. Right. But uh, it was the, the like myself and you guys, the bridge of um, uh, of the search is over. When I showed it to Jimmy Jameson, I, the, I, I sang it to him the original way I wrote the bridge. I'm a huge, huge Burt Bacharach, Hal David fan. Yeah, sure. As maybe you can hear in some of my melodies. And yeah. Hal David's lyrics are, you know, he wrote the book as far as I'm concerned. But originally I had the, the melody of the bridge. Now the stretch. Out yeah. behind me, the years that I have lost, broken heart, lie. You know, yeah. and and Frankie goes, nah, you know, it's too, uh, you know, too melodic. I don't know how he, nah, he just went nah. <laughs> so it became <laughs> But the cool thing is that the last message, it's cool and sad at the same time. Jimmy Jameson always liked the original melody better, yeah. but he was vetoed too. But every time he would come to sing with one of my shows in in the uh, in two thousands, he sang the original melody yeah. on stage. That's cool. You know, and the and I, I left him a message two weeks before he passed away, and it was just me going. Now the last stretch behind me, 
<laughs> and he cool. knew who I was right away. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that Man. was the last time I, I uh, left a message for him. Yeah. I was really, really sad. Man. Well, Survivor broke up in 1989 after a remarkable decade of hits, uh, but a lot of people probably don't realize that you were very busy uh, moonlighting, so to speak, in that same decade, writing songs for other artists as well. Um, and in fact, 38 Special found greater chart success than Survivor had experienced up to that point when Rockin' Into the Night came out in 1980. Um, now, I noticed that the song is credited to you and your Survivor bandmates Gary Smith and Frankie Sullivan, so how did another band uh, wind up having a hit with your song? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is quite quite the story. Um, this song was extremely popular when we played it in all the clubs. This is before we had our first record. We were sure that this was going to be one of our first hit records because, you know, when we played the Thirsty Whale and the, and all these clubs, you know, around Chicago, right. they went crazy, you know, and we knew we had something. Uh, and and yet, Ron Nevison, our producer, at the end of the day said, you know, that song doesn't fit your, mm. your sound. It's too Southern. Ron Nevison, hell, he, you know, bad company, Led Zeppelin, The Who, come on. <laughs> right. uh, and, and still one of my favorite producers of all time and a, and, a, and a great person. So we didn't question it, but, you know, our, our A&R person, the very eccentric John Kalodner, came in one day and said, so you're not going to use that song? And Ron says, no. And he says, can I have a cassette of it just for my own, you know, listening? Well, my own listening, BS. He, he went and <laughs> took it over to, to 38 Specials manager, uh, Mark Mark Spector and Mark immediately took it to the band who was looking for one more song for their uh, their next album, which became their breakthrough album because of our hit uh, Rock Into the Night. They went in the oh. studio, they cut it like immediately. Wow. They cut it off the cassette, which was a rough mix, and it was very garbled, so they got some of the words wrong, <laughs> which as, as a songwriter I thought was hilarious, uh, but I still sing it the correct way when the Ads of March do it. Uh, the line leading up to the, um, the instrumental, uh, the way they sing it, it, and it's more than that. Yes, it's more than that. Well, that's not the lyric. <laughs> the lyric really is, and in the morning light, we'll be rolling. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, my line's much better. But anyway, it's, it, it didn't hurt the success of the song. But, yeah, sure. I mean, it, unfortunately, it caused a great deal of friction in the band. Even though Frankie and and Gary had a certain stake in the in the songwriting, you know it it felt like a big fu, and, yeah. and I got the brunt of it because John Kalander was really my friend. He he kind of favored me because 
he saw me as the leader of the band. So I was looked at as the bad guy who gave the big hit to 38. But, you know, I, I still use uh, one of the lyrics from that song. Um, like when I'm tuning my guitar or something, sometimes I'll get to a point and I'll say, you know, it's close enough for rock and roll. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, know. well, that originally was a line that people used to say it's close enough for jazz, and I just adapted it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, even speaking of jazz, they're so, thinking of all of your influences and the different bands that you wrote for, um, when I hear Rockin' Into the Night, I can kind of hear how the guy from Ides of March wrote that song, because I hear, you know, you've got this rhythmic shift in the chorus and the melody, Rockin' Into, and also it's Rockin' Into the Night, that cool syncopated change there. It's funny because I wasn't sure that I was going to fly, hmm. you know, and Kalander was not happy with that, that odd phrase. And I said, John, that's going to make that song, you know. And he kind of acceded to it. But, you know, what's funny is I always thought that was a, a like an off measure or a measure of 5 4. So, no, it's perfectly in 4 4. Yeah. It's just the way the words are, are uh, syncopated. Right. Uh, I, it's right in time. And so after that song, then uh, Hold On Loosely was a hit for 38 Special in 1981. That's uh, even before Survivor broke into the top 40. But this time you wrote the song with Jeff Carlisi and Don Barnes from 38 Special, um, not your Survivor bandmates. So how did you wind up then hooking with those guys as co-writers? Well, you know, John Kalaner, he's kind of been my mentor, you know, as a songwriter for for, since that time. Was he your A&R guy at the label? He was. He yeah. was uh, the original Scotty Brothers were originally distributed by Atlantic, and John Clodden was Atlantic until the day he left and, and joined Geffen. But, of course, when the Scotties changed to Epic um, on the, the second album, John Clodden was no longer in our lives as much, but he stuck with me. Yeah. And he knew uh, that I was an asset to some of his acts, and that's mm -hmm. when he started putting me with you know, Sammy Hagar and, and of course, 38 Special. And uh, he was good friends with Mark Spector, and, and they said, well, we had a big hit with Rockin' in the Night. Let's get these these guys together. And one day, you know, Jeff Carlisi and me and, and Don Barnes were sitting around the same kitchen counter uh, at my house in the Grange and uh, looking at each other like, well, okay, we're supposed to write a hit. Okay, great. <laughs> How do we do that? You know? Yeah. Uh, this is really before I was really into the whole collaborate, collaborations thing. I didn't really know what I was doing. All I knew is that I had these really great guitarists in my room here. <laughs> right. Let's do something cool. And I, I said, well, you know, basically, does anybody have any titles? And Don Barnes says, well, I got a title. He's really sheepish about it. But he finally said, I said, well, what? Tell me. He says, well, hold on loosely. <laughs> and I just love the way that sounded. I said, but don't let go. And suddenly, you know, I, I okay, I said, great, that's a great start. And Jeff says, well, I got a, I got a lick, you know, and I go, well, let's hear it. He says, well, it's kind of a Cars ripoff, you know. He played big dad on it, you know, and I'm going, holy crap. It is a little bit like just what I needed, though. Yeah. Well, right, right, that's what he, he admitted it, you know. And But there's that neat change where it mm -hmm. goes to that one fret down, you know. It, it was just brilliant uh, progression. Yeah. I, and I had all I needed. I said, okay, we got a song here, you know, <laughs> and I started, you see it all around you, good love and go bad. You know, it's just a good way to start, okay. Mm. And, and just one line followed the next, and, and we thought we had it done. I said, no, no, I'm going, I'm, let me. A lot of times what I'll do, guys, is is I, I got to get alone. After mm. a time, you just got to get alone with your own thoughts and, I went into the bedroom and I just almost 
put a line through everything I'd just written except for a couple of lines, and I rewrote the lyric. And I came back, and Don says, I thought we were done. I said, no, no, watch this. And and that I, I read them, uh, uh, sang them the final lyrics, and they go, okay, I get it. It's a lot better. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, yeah. I always do that. I, I, sometimes you just got to get alone. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously that song is very successful. And then in July of 1982, uh as a songwriter, you had two songs in the top ten at the same time. I had the Tiger, of course, which went to number one for for Survivor, and then Caught Up in You, which hit number ten for Thirty Eight Special. your bandmates, uh, you know, after rocking into the night, sort of feeling a little resentment. Um, now <laughs> you're, you're co-writing with, with these guys that it could be kind of viewed as the competition. So how was that? How did, how did you navigate the politics of all that? Not very well, not very well. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, the, the thing is I'm a songwriter first and, yeah. and the guys just wouldn't accept the fact that I've got other ways of, of expressing myself than the, the narrow constraints of, of one band. Sure. Uh, and what they also didn't realize is the worldview of what other musicians bring to the party. I just told you guys how, how obviously that wouldn't have happened without Don's title and without, without Jeff Carlisi's lick, which really became the song. Right. So it's not like giving songs away. Same thing with Caught Up in You. That was Jeff Carlisi's um, lick, and it was Don Burns' title. Again, I became the alchemist. Right. So my conscience is clear, because those songs would not have existed without those people. Sure, well, yeah. Uh, another one of your co-writing successes um, came with a song called Heavy Metal, which you wrote with Sammy Hagar, which uh, appeared on uh, his album Standing Hampton, which was his first platinum album as a solo artist uh, in 81. And so how did you and Sammy get together? Again, that was uh, John Kalana played Cupid on, on that. And uh, he said, I just signed Sammy to Geffen. And so he flew me out to San Francisco. Sammy picks me up in his uh, red, brand new red Daytona Ferrari. It'd have to be red. <laughs> you had to be red. Be red. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I said, man, that, that's, this guy's a rock star, you know. <laughs> but at first, you know, we didn't know what to write. And uh, then he told me about this movie that is. His manager, Eddie Leffler, told him about they're looking for a theme song called Heavy Metal. And, and I said, well, let's write that. And it, Here's a funny inside story that I don't think I've, I've told anyone. He was also simultaneously write, writing a song called There's Just One Way to Rock, oh, okay, yeah. which end, ended up on that album. And yeah. he still plays it in his shows. Well, I, he played me that. I said, why don't we make that Heavy Metal? There's just one way to rock. Heavy metal, you know, right. and we played with that for a while. At the end of the day, after a few minutes, he goes, "Now nah, I like that song the way it is. Let's write a new one." <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, around the same time that you were writing with Sammy, I know that Reba McIntyre recorded your song "Indelibly Blue" as the opening track on her Heart to Heart album. Lost in the city, deserted and cold, watching the cars passing by. 
I would venture to say that you were the only guy with a Sammy Hagar cut and a Reba McIntyre cut that year, if not in the history of all time. Uh, so how, how did that come about? Well, you know, I was also a staff writer with Warner Chapel, uh-huh. and uh, I wrote the song called Indulgent Blue, and I wrote it on my own, mm-hmm. and I sent it to Warner Chapel, and they pitched it, and miraculously, uh, they, got a tr- they got a cut through their national office with the with the great Reba McIntyre. I was yeah. totally floored, because <laughs> right. I, I, I knew this was a really good song, but I, I just never expected something that cool. Yeah. Well, skipping ahead into the 1990s, you worked with a lot of classic artists, including the Doobie Brothers, uh, who recorded Divided Highway and Under Your Spell on the Brotherhood album from 1991. Um, Not long after, uh, Cheap Trick released the single You're All I Want to Do, which you co-wrote with the band. Um, And you seem to have this particular knack for, for being able to go into band situations and and collaborate and obviously each band has its own culture and its own set of dynamics um how have you been able to come in as an outsider and sort of navigate those relationships to collaborate so successfully with with really a variety of of musicians well it it takes some it's it's challenging at times you know i mean with with rick nielsen we must have written 15 songs before we could settle on those two yeah, uh, I remember you know Robin Zander coming over and and singing the songs and uh, you know there was one song we wrote that we were really really high on and uh, Robin says I can't sing that it mm. sounds like a publishing demo <laughs> 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 uh, and I and we go ouch you know uh, <laughs> yeah. but you know you're right I mean personalities you've got to na- navigate them and uh, some people are are just natural it's it's so easy it's like rolling off a log. Right. Um, uh, Rick wasn't always an easy co-write. You know, yeah. it, it, it was, uh, he was very particular, and um, he, he liked to keep it really, really simple. Sure. Uh, you know, Steven Tyler, although, uh, you know, none of the stuff that I wrote with him surfaced, we wrote a couple of great songs, one called Brass Balls, which he, he still talks about in, in blogs and stuff. Yeah. That should absolutely be an Aerosmith song, yeah. Brass Balls. No kidding. It, yeah. it, it was really a good good track. And that was a very cool co-write because he challenged me hmm. lyrically. He um, He's a lyric guy. I mean, he's really good with the lyrics. If you yeah. hear those some of those clever lyrics, it's, it's not all Desmond Child. There's a lot of, a lot of Steven Tyler in that stuff. And he pushed me to write the most clever lyric for Brass Balls that I would have settled for less. And and that was just a a great experience. Interesting. Well, and and another collaboration that you had, which I imagine must have been a dream collaboration, was with Brian Wilson on the song Dream Angel from his 1998 album Imagination. And I understand that you also toured with his band for a while. Um, Then more recently, you were a co-writer on the first three songs of this most uh, recent Beach Boys album, uh, That's Why God Made the Radio. So I, 
I would love to hear about what it's like to work with just the, the amazing Brian Wilson. <laughs> well, you know, I'm still pinching myself yeah. and bringing this up to uh, the real currency uh, of time. And uh, I can say this finally is that um, I have a cut on his new solo album. Oh, uh, and uh, I, I can't tell you the, the name of the album because it's not solidified, but the song is called Sail Away. Uh, myself, Brian Wilson, Joe Thomas, and Larry Millis, uh, mm. also my partner in the Eyes of March. That's the team that wrote That's Why God Made the Radio. So, you know, usually the process is pretty much the same with Brian, you know. And um, with God Radio, I, that came about from a conversation at a, at a uh, Italian restaurant. And I was sitting there with Brian and Joe, and we were talking about radio and the transistor radio and AM radio. And I, I said, to me, nothing still sounds as good as a, as a hit song coming through the oval speaker of uh, my 1964 Valiant, <laughs> and uh, through through gulps of shrimp, Brian says, "Yeah, that's why God made the radio." Mm, right. And uh, I wrote that down again, knowing I know a good hook when I see one. Yeah. And uh, and then we wrote it uh, at my piano with uh, with with Brian. And again, it's it's usually a process of him noodling around <laughs> till he gets a progression, and then. And I'm going stop. Okay, stop. That's good. How about <laughs> if you let him on his own, he'll just keep keep playing and yeah. never remember the good stuff. Mm. <laughs> right. So, so with Brian, it's a matter of mainly corralling his 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 genius. Yeah. You know, but you know, the the newest song I'm very excited about. Sail away. It's it's very much in the uh, obviously the Sloop John B uh, frame. Yeah. You know, it's got the, the bass harmonica and the tin whistle and it's. It's really a treat. That's awesome. Well, you know, Jim, for a Northern Illinois guy, you've also had a good bit of Southern rock success. Um, and, you know, we've talked about the 38 special cuts, but you've written for the Henry Paul Band, uh, the Outlaws, multiple Leonard Skinner projects from the 1990s and 2000s. And in that same general category, I would also include Southern rock-influenced country acts like, uh, you know, Van Zant, which features brothers Donnie and Johnny from, of course, 38 Special and Skinner, respectively. And, and also you've done some songs with Blackhawk, which is, of course, Henry Paul's post-Outlaws country band. Um, how do you prepare yourself to write with acts or for acts that might be coming from a very different perspective or background or aesthetic from from your own background? Well, again, uh, you know, I'm kind of a chameleon uh, when it comes to that, I, I, or let's call it musical tofu. I, I'm able to absorb <laughs> the flavors in the room. Uh, That's great. And, and again, when, when I'm hanging with Henry Paul, I become that thing. You know, it's... And yet I bring a little bit of city, you know, city boy into what he does, and he brings country boy into what I do. It's really a meeting of the minds. I mean, the lyrics for 38 Special are probably a little more Chicago-based or a little more collegiate than stuff they would write on their own. So I push them a little bit towards the, let's let's speak intelligently, yeah. and they push me a little bit into, let's make sure that the average person can understand it, you know? <laughs> right, right. And that's what collaboration's all about. Yeah. And so, Jim, you're a, you're a self-confessed songwriting geek, and uh, in 2002, you co-authored the book Songwriting for Dummies. What was it that made you want to share your knowledge with aspiring songwriters in that book? Wow. Well, and just updated, there, there's a volume two which came out in, in a couple of years ago, which oh, okay. I 
updated the, the stories and some of the, uh, the song examples and some of the technology. But to be honest with you guys, I didn't want to do this book. Hmm. Uh, I was given the offer, and they, they basically said, you're the guy to do it. And I go, really? And, and the reason I didn't want to do it at first is because I like to think of songwriting as magic. Yeah. Or to be an element of, I don't know how this happens, it just happens, okay? And here's a book that I was being asked to, to un, unravel the threads of this magic and tell people how I did it. I don't know how I do it, okay? <laughs> and uh, But I said, you know what? This is something that people can learn from. And damn it, I'm going to analyze what I do and how I do it. Yeah. And that was really the first time I confronted the process. And, but but I couldn't talk to you like I am now had I not broke it down for that book and realized, okay, it started here, you know, with Jeff's riff and then and, and Don's title, and then you, you know, the, I was trying to deny the mechanics of it, and, and really writing a song, I always say, I don't know what the exact uh, equation is, but I, I call it, you know, 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration. Yeah. You get that initial buzz, and then... It's what you do with it, and it's it's hammer and nails and, and crazy glue. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, they, they you, you hear that, that saying, those who can't do, teach. But this is an example of a guy who obviously did the heck out of some crazy songwriting and wrote a book and, and taught people from uh, proven success. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of books out there about songwriting. But if you want to learn something about songwriting, you know, get the book by the guy who's actually written a huge bagload of hit songs. You know, I think there's something to be said for, uh, for, for the resume there. And and, you know, really, um, so much, so many things that, that we could have talked about today. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Of course, Ides of March reunited in the 1990s. Uh, you've continued to perform with them as as well as having been involved with other groups you founded, such as Pride of Lions and Jim Peterick's Life Force. And you've continued to write songs. You've continued to perform. And it's like the decades keep rolling on, and you just keep rocking and keep doing this amazing stuff. So Yeah, you- I, I just want to mentioned the Ides of March, and we're celebrating 50 years um, as a band, and uh, we have a three-disc set coming out in March. It's called uh, 50-Year Celebration, Last Band Standing, the Ides uh-huh. of March, and you mentioned uh, the book, Through the Eye of the Tiger, which uh, is Ben Bella uh, publishing, and it's doing extremely well, and I'm doing uh, book signings, which I combine with uh, unplugged uh, versions of my songs. I usually sing for about a half hour and talk about the book and, you know, watch my website, jimpeterick.com. Well, Jim, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. Thank you. I'm blown away by your knowledge of, well, all, all, all things songwriting, but, you know, from my point of view, from my career, you really, you you know, it all. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's a lot to know in there. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks, Scott and Paul. You've been great. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks again to Jim Peterick for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode of Songcraft, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and spread the word to your friends. Don't forget to stop by songcraftshow.com and send us a message with the phrase Eye of the Tiger to enter for your chance to win a copy of Jim Peterick's autobiography Through the Eye of the Tiger, the Rock and Roll Life of Survivor's founding member. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. Rising up back on the street Did what time took chances I went the distance, now I'm back on my feet 
just a man with the will to survive. It's the eye of a tiger, dream at a fight, rising.